Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Ntuleng Patlele, and I am one of the credit research analysts in the CIB Markets Research Team, and I'll be your host for this afternoon's fireside chat. Um, first of all, I welcome um, all of our guests. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Um, I do believe that you could have chosen to do anything else with your time this afternoon, but then um, you chose to, to accept our invitation and just sit in on this chat with us. And with that, I do also hope um, that you guys do make, make the most of the time that you're about to spend with us. Stay engaged, um, you know, whenever you have a question during the chat, there's a chat box on there. Put your question on there. We also are happy um, to, to take comments from you guys as well. Where I mean, we also want your insights because um, that will help better enrich the conversation. Um, just a couple of housekeeping stuff um, before we start. Um, please do note that our uh, analysts, the independent analysts, so whatever views that are shared on here, it's that of the analysts and not necessarily the official NetBank view. And if you want the official NetBank view, you can go on um, to our research portal and just have a look at what the view is from NetBank Group's uh, perspective. And uh, with that, ladies and gentlemen, today we will be talking credit and SOEs. Um, I have the pleasure of hosting one of our senior credit research analysts. Um, you know, according to me, I believe that he is a very seasoned credit analyst. And not only that, I consider him someone that's also a thought leader within that, that space. So um, as you sit with him today, engaging with him today, also bear in mind that okay, you're talking to someone that can also provide some, for, some form of thought leadership in terms of um, whatever we will be discussing. And yeah, um, yeah, please, um, Help me welcome Jones Gondo, just like a virtual hand clap there for him. Hi, Jones. Hi, Ntuleng. Afternoon. How are you doing? Afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm well. I'm well. How are you doing? No, I'm great. I'm excited to be here. So, um, yeah, we're going to have a great chat. Yeah, I know. It's been a while. Like, when did we have the last one? Last year, was it in June or July? Yeah, exactly. In the yeah. 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 All right, Jones. So Jones and to our guests as well. So um, it's post Sona, the SOC sector. When you have a look at it, it looks like a thriller movie. Rating reviews are coming up um, around May, and with that, you know, Jones has been for a while. He's been deeply worried about this, the impact that all of this is going to have on um, resolutions of SOC credit distress and default situation, as well as the the support that the government is willing to give SOEs because that feeds into all of those things and the overall um, fiscal policy of, of the country. So today with Jones, we will be discussing South Africa's credit outlook and then we'll also be having a look at something that's very topical right now in the credit market, which is land banks debt restructure. And then lastly, we'll have a look at um, the domestic corporate bond market. Uh, let's start off with sovereign credit because I mean that I think for me that's sort of like the thing that mainly drives every other thing. When I reflect and you know last year around this time uh, we, we were in a situation where South Africa was still in investment grade and at that time we've always held the view that Moody's was prolonging a downgrade um, by the sovereign because when we had a look at the number as well as the First facts and circumstances that were surrounding the, the, the numbers, uh, we didn't think that South Africa was an investment grade 
um, uh, that we don't think that South Africa should have an, an investment grade rate rating. And then on top of that, you know, one of the other things that I'd also think about was, OK, let's just say a downgrade does happen. Will that be a catalyst for reform by the government? And on that, Jones, um, do you think that the downgrade that eventually ensued um, last year, was that a catalyst uh, for reform? And OK, maybe even before we go there, Jones, I think when someone looks at most of the research that we've been publishing, our main focus has been on Moody's. Maybe explain to the audience why is it that we particularly focusing a lot more on the Moody's rating and not necessarily the rating from um, S&P and Fitch. All right, thanks, Ntuleng. So the rating trajectory of South Africa is very much like a proverbial fiscal cliff. You know, gradual climb uh, to higher and higher ratings, and in a very short period of time, we've really just dropped off uh, into a very deep um, level of ratings, the lowest we've been in our rating history. And so, as we, you know, we've been following the story, we have been looking at all the rating agencies, but it's always also good practice to look at the anomaly. And the anomaly was that. Uh, like you said, Moody's was dragging its feet. For I was just looking at the data of the last three years, just CDS or bond implied spreads. The market has been on average rating South Africa at BA3 over that period. And we only now uh, reached BA2. Um, and we had two downgrades last year. So the big picture is, is that we've seen a stepwise progression and pretty much S&P and Fitch are on the same bucket. Um, and that's that was priced in um, and then it was just Moody's left um, and of course they were the last one to trigger an exit out of the world government bond index so that was the first instance why we paid attention to it but the, the second one really is to understand why they see the story differently and um, the, the re real answer to that has been a rotation from a big emphasis at the ANC elective conference around politics and politics of reform uh, to really trying to now change the transition to things that have to do with the fiscal deterioration. And so now I think they've just caught up uh, in, in, in rating levels to the market and to their peers. Uh, I think the follow up question that I have on that is one of our questions, so I'll put that on hold for now and then um, just yeah, before we get this to that question, I think it's important that we first address the other question that I asked you was, was the downgrade, um, were these two downgrades by Moody's a, an actual catalyst for reform where um, also another thing I also thought of, okay, was it fair of us to expect a downgrade to be something that will be a catalyst um, for reform where, you know, I think of things like you find government officials saying things like if the rand falls, will pick it back up. And I think most of most politicians, they've got very little regard uh, on matters that relate to the sovereign credit rating. So was it a catalyst for reform? Should we have expected it to be a catalyst for reform? Um, so the short answer is uh, no, you shouldn't have expected it specifically to be a catalyst for reform. They do um, ratings, you know, they, they use really is to help benchmark relative value of credit. And so, you know, it's a pricing discussion and uh, it feeds into that. And so the catalyst for reform indirectly would have been um, 
we pay for the cost of that credit deterioration through our nominal bond curve, the cost of raising money uh, for the sovereign. And so that in and of itself should have been a catalyst for, for reform because what it was saying was we can no longer afford the burden of debt and the lack of economic activity. It has two costs. Yes, one is a steeper curve, but the second and bigger, more telling catalyst for reform is that there's a social cost. And the social cost, we see it in high unemployment. We also see it in the fact that um, we, you know, we can't deliver or afford to deliver services at when we have to borrow at such high costs. So the, the long and short of it is no, it shouldn't in and of itself be a catalyst for, for reform, but the story reflects the desperate need for it because when we pay for it, it's both rands and cents and in human, human capital. So basically what she's saying that they need to be hit where it hurts and that is their pockets. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, you either get hit where it hurts in, in, in elections and uh, performance in, in, in that social contract with society, or you'll pay for it uh, as we are doing now at higher yields um, in, in the market. Oh, and then on that, uh, we did mention that, okay, we think that Moody's has kind of caught up with the um, credit story, but have they really proper caught up? Should we be worried about um, another downgrade uh, from Moody's? So in the near term, it's 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 actually a, a tricky question because in the two downgrades last year, they really maxed out all the quantitative um, metrics for for GDP for debt to GDP, interest cost to revenue, so all the debt sustainability metrics. And so now we're at that point to say, okay, they really have caught up to the story that South Africa's fiscal cliff um, has arrived. Uh, we're in it. We're not we we're not uh, waiting for it to happen. We're in it. Uh, but then what becomes the tricky part is that you have to look at the construct of how our economic growth dynamics, um, our poor performance in terms of unemployment, high inequality, and those social costs I was talking about, that society can't carry the cost of, of, of this deterioration. And that's probably where the story starts to focus now. Uh, don't forget contextually, we in a uh, local government election year, we will have a redo of the ANC elective conference next year. So this stuff on the horizon that's going to be meaty for certain parts of the rating metrics. But most importantly, this budget is going to be incredibly important. Um, we know that, that the market is sort of buoyed, buoyed up for the fact that uh, revenue collection is going to be better than expected at MTBPS and spending hasn't sped a, uh, as fast as, as, as was expected. All relatively good things. But the real test is going to be, does the institution of government, even within the ANC itself, now have um, you know, the discipline to go back to um, a reformist uh, type of policies that were spoken about in previous budgets? They've got a bit of breathing room now, but we think that um, the, that only buys them time to the next MTBPS perhaps, and so a hold off on perhaps a hold off on rating actions in May uh, from from the rating agencies. Outlooks may may look to change for, for the for the sake of um, of S&P. But the reality is the pattern has been the MTBPS has been where 
things have gone awry. You can really just see that South Africa is a particular outlier in our cost of debt, in our unemployment rate, in our per capita wealth levels um, relative to Turkey and Brazil. But the what what a lot of the market or our clients we've been talking to is that is that the similarities between Brazil and South Africa right now, similar rating levels across all three agencies. The only material difference um, is at Moody's where they have a stable outlook, we have a negative outlook. But you can see that the trends are negative um, and what will matter will be how um, we arrive at policy implementation over the next 12 months that can start to make a dent to some of these trends or arrest them. So now, is it a thing where we can always expect that, okay, fair numbers will look um, fairly okay, so no doubt, no, no probability of a downgrade from Moody's is much low, lower. Come uh, MTBBS, the numbers will not look that great. Okay, maybe there potentially um, there could be a downgrade. Is that a trend that you've seen? And from is that something that you've seen? And then from that, we can say, okay, there's kind of this trend that we're seeing from some of the rating agencies. Uh, look, crossover credits into sub investment grade are always tricky. Uh, they never really move smoothly in one in one go. So, like you were talking about Moody's, um, initially our view is that um, they were going to downgrade uh, in in early early last year, and that they would move in in two notches. They got there. Timing it is always difficult. The reality is is that, like I said is that for the government, it's a wake up call to realize that you can't access as much credit or at the same cost. And also that uh, it's now starting to weigh on the rest of the economy, that systemic risk, that credit risk feeds into everything we do. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that uh, I tend to try and look at quite a lot is credit spreads, public versus um, private uh, debt dynamics. And um, I think the long term trend uh, for that has been that in periods where you know we've we're now starting to see a divergence between nominal uh, uh, rates, nominal curve rates, and our swap rates. In our market, interest rate risk is always borne by the borrower, and so we have a tendency for uh, infla uh, inflation-linked or um, floating rate notes, and so we fund ourselves at the bank curve. But in all metrics that we look at internationally, everything uses a risk-free rate of the nominal curve. And so essentially when we're looking at country risk, be it capital asset pricing for equity, uh, be it a project that's looking at weighted average cost of capital, the risk-free rate is not accounting exactly for where um, our market tends to fund itself. So that we do have an extra premium. It means that, uh, you know, the, the we, we the cost of credit or the cost of doing business in the economy is now starting to price into um, our curves. Um, and that is one way in which I would say rating agencies need to start thinking about when we say the market is deep, we have a deep capital market. It's deep for the sovereign, yes, but not um, necessarily the experience for corporate credit and other borrowers that actually create GDP growth. Um, so, yeah, in Tuleng, it's, it's, it's a tough one for the trends because we are in a changing uh, environment in terms of how the creative story actually starts to be lived, a lived reality in the real economy. 
Um, while we're at that, where we kind of talking about the government yield curve, there's a question here where someone is asking what your views are on further sub actions on the longer end um, of the curve. Are the other emerging markets have been far more active to reduce their steepness? Uh, yes, I mean, I think the national the, the sub always says we've got tools to um, address uh, issues of of a healthy curve or not. So this is why I'm making paying a lot of attention to the to to the swap curve or the the the, the delta the asset swap spread between nominal and swaps because we need to know that we have a healthy capital market. Banks borrow in this particular market, right? And um, you know the them going to the long end of the curve for me would be a step where uh, that says to us we're starting to lose control um, over fiscal fiscal spending and our own curve. And so, you know, they've been reluctant to make interventions into the FX implied rates market. For now, they, they're letting that basis just run. The market will clear. That's how they, 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 they look at it and they see it. But I think the persistence of this gap or um, uh, is as long as it starts to eat into um, perhaps uh, long-term inflation expectations, then I think quantitatively or rationally, they'll start to make an intervention. So 31 December 2020, at, uh, you know, over, I think the, the estimate was over 800 billion uh, funding requirement, right? That can swallow up the whole corporate bond market. So. The question I'm, I'm, I'm having and that the Saab has been looking into is, does this squeeze out banks from raising money in the corporate bond market? Does it squeeze out other corporates from accessing uh, money in the market? And so the reality is, is that if you want to raise term money, 10-year money, you really have to um, pay up um, quite significantly. And that hasn't happened. As soon as that happens, then I'm sure from a financial stability point of view, the Saab will start to look at what, what they can do uh, to, to first of all, secure financial stability. Uh, with, with that as well, Jones, let's say we fast forward later on um, Q4, Moody's downgrades um, the sovereigns. What impact would that have on corporate credit? Do I think you touched on it a bit? Maybe just like add on to that. Yeah, yeah so, I think the way I look at it is about systemic risk, right? So we've we've made the point that um, the so, the sovereign cost of debt permeates into into all valuations of all assets because it is the the risk free rate. If you have the R twenty thirty ten year at nine nine and a half percent, then uh, you know your equity risk premium is maybe for the JC top forty around twelve and a half percent. If we keep on steepening, that delta is going to uh, get less and less. So the, the the minimum cost of doing anything that's growth promoting or creating value in the economy is getting more and more expensive. That's just the basic uh, the basic fact. But uh, the reality is that our market, because it's so small, they tend to then go into the bank loan market and they sit on cash. And that's been the experience. And so for how long can we have this hiatus? I think we used to call it um, uh, a strike on, uh, on on investments in the economy. We can plan for investment, we can plan for growth, but if it's either too expensive or we're quite uncertain about the term of funding that we can get, then it's just not going to happen. Those are the facts for, for corporate credit. 
um, we're always going to have a lot of money available to deploy, but not enough appetite for uh, corporates to come in and issue. And that's the crisis we're in at the moment. Um, because of time, I'll just take one more question um, here, uh, or two maybe, where someone's asking it. I'll, I'll, I'll take two because this one, I think it's a question that I've seen people, I've heard people asking quite often is, um, whether or not a default by the sovereign is um, inevitable, and if so, what does that journey to the default look like? Okay, it's a good question. Um, and the short answer is because we borrow in local currency, um, we are unlikely to default, right? That's when you kind of have this um, very, you know, a moral hazard where the Saab is kind of forced to start monetizing the debt, and that's inflationary, and that inflates the debt away. But before we even get there, the system of risk in South Africa, the way I would see a path to a near default situation is an inability from a liquidity point of view to um, service a call on a guarantee on a state-owned enterprise like an ESCOM, right? Um, it's, 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 it won't be from printing too many uh, bonds and weekly auctions and they'll just continue to roll those. It's more about the corporate uh, risk um, and if those happen all at all at once. So one of the triangles that uh, a mental triangle I have in my head, the one is to say the sovereign is guaranteed uh, a corporate and SOE. The SOE is no longer a going concern. It's not viable. And what the sovereign does is it borrows uh, from the same asset managers and pension funds to go and bail out that entity. But the same person who is holding that SOE debt is also calling for a guarantee at the same time. We've got a closed system and the money is circulating and it's all one risk. And so it becomes quite difficult to make a case to say, do we even want guarantees um, at all? Because we're facing the very same risk. It's now SA Inc, the Republic of South Africa. And so that's why I kind of feel that um, at the end of the day, fiscalizing or crystallizing debt onto the sovereign just takes away that extra step of uncertainty and risk and uh, it's, it's, it's already been incorporated into your metrics anyway. So the more time we waste is just creating more uncertainty and angst in the market out. That's my opinion on it. And then just to um, wrap up this session, I'll take the last um, question. Also note that uh, we won't be able to get through all of the questions in this session, but then however, we do collect all of the questions that we get and those that we could not respond to during the live, uh, we'll send responses to that. Um, so someone here in the audience um, asks, um, so they say that given this administra administration's poor track record at implementation, on reforms specifically, the public sector wage bill on energy, on telecoms, on SOE reform. What do you think will need to happen to move the dial on this? They are saying the same things as have been said in previous zoners, budgets, etc. What will actually spur them to action or, or implement and make the hard decisions which will involve trade offs? Basically, how much longer can they kick the can down the road? Well, my, my basic view is that they can't kick it further down into the next fiscal year. We've kind of hit the end of the road or runway on that. The reason why I think that is because, you know, you take some of the SOEs out there like a denial that's saying that we don't have any more cash 
for even to pay salaries or to operate in March. And the auditors are saying we're unlikely to give them a going concern view. I think then they can't kick anything down the road. It's it's it's, it's failed. It's completely moribund, right? So I think the the pattern has been they will look at every every alternative and every option and talk about it and have conferences and write papers on governing better until there's really no option left, which is to pick up the entity as jobs are, are being lost, the capacity is gone and it's just not worth resuscitating the entity. So the scale and presence of SOEs are, is, is diminishing as we speak. Um, and the natural conclusion of that is um, that uh, you know, it, 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 it just comes to a point of, do we bail it out or do we let it go? Um, and I think that is, has been the, the pattern. Um, I don't expect them to, given the history that we've been talking about it for a while, to just wake up one day and start saying we're implementing. The catalyst for that has to be either a social cost or being pushed into a corner. And I think if you read a lot of the rating agencies and what they're saying about ESG, social risks, um, environmental risks in terms of being a drought stricken area is that we just can't afford crises like, um, you know, a human uh, development issue, a pandemic uh, or a drought or floods. We can't pay for it. We can't pay our way out of it. But, you know, when, when the pain ar suddenly arrives, uh, we're forced to all just look at the only option on the table. Um, and that's where South Africa in practice, if you look back, has been. We leave it to the very last minute where there's an obvious and only option. Um, and that you look back and you realize that decision could have been made many, many moons ago. So basically, we'll stop kicking the can down the road when there's no longer road to kick the can into. Correct. <laughs> um, yeah, moving over, which you kind of started onto SOEs where yeah, I don't think you can talk the South African credit market and not speak SOEs where one of the reasons I think was depicted on that chart there we can see um, out of the total bonds outstanding SOEs, they hold a very big um, chunk on there. And, you know, we've seen another major shift in the credit market when it comes to SOEs, where now um, this is how I analyze it to say that, you know, the when I look at SOEs, the potato bag, at some point, not all the potatoes in the bag were rotten, where I'd look at DFIs, where they seem like the unicorns in the SOE stable. But now we find ourselves in a situation where the potato bag is full of um, potatoes. And last year we had Land Bank um, defaulting on its debt. So briefly, maybe, Jones, can you take us through what the story is at Land Bank? So the story at Land Bank really is that, like you said, they defaulted March, April last year. It took them until about August to organize investors and put a debt solution on the table. That debt solution was essentially to term out near term debt by about 13 months thereabouts. Um, and what was critical for it is that there was um, a, a government guarantee, a partial one for 60 percent. Uh, the reality or what, what turned out was that in October, uh, National Treasury wrote a memo to revise its guarantee approval criteria and uh, clearly uh, Land Bank uh, was using the money to enhance credit for, 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 for the restructure. Uh, you know, ideally what they wanted was that you would restore 
the rating to about a single A category so that investors still can roll their debt and participate in this. But given that there's no guarantee, they came in January saying we're revising the debt plan. The new plan is everyone five year amortizing debt and we have big issues with it because number one, if it's unlisted, unrated, you're going to run into mandate issues. For those people that can't hold a five year debt for whatever reason, be it a money market fund, well, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and that's the only option on the table. They aren't uh, other options. So I think it's, it's not to say that it's dead on arrival. I just think it's just was what they could hatch last minute and they are staring at some big maturities in March um, uh, if, if, if it's not resolved. Yes, they, are, they did get um, uh, equity injections, 3 billion uh, at the end of last year and they're expecting 7 billion in this budget. But you know, they have a debt load uh, a high debt load and you know high about 37 billion um, rand at the moment and the asset base is um, asset quality is just not great uh, so they, 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 they're stuck for options the only lever they can push is to force um, uh, creditors or lenders uh, to fit the cash flow profile that remains and the the, the solution they've put on the table is just if they're able to not disperse loans and open up their loan book for other financiers to participate and share the risk, then they can have uh, cash in reserve to service their amortization schedule. So it's complicated and it really begs the question for me whether this can happen again um, and it's down to a governance and oversight. I strongly believe that, you know, the, 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 the idea out there that these DFI should fall under some sort of super supervision, prudential supervision uh, only makes sense because this is not the first time a DFI has had problems. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it's it's now costing the cost of mismanagement and the lack of reform and implementation of governance are now being borne by the market. And then now, Historically, uh, we've mentioned that we kind of hold the view that in terms of government um, coming in and supporting these SOEs, we thought that, OK, maybe they'd consider whether or not they'd support SOEs on a case by case basis. Um, has that changed where now with the what's happening with Land Bank, do we think that will have an impact on the other SOEs? And if so, what impact would that be? Yeah, it does have an impact. And the one that I'm uh, most mindful about is that government support, implicit or explicit, is not exactly as um, it was intended. So yes, we know the National Treasury and the guidance notes are trying to clean that up and it's rational and um, I'd support that they do do that. But you know, you're trying to fix something when the horse is bolted. It's failed already, it's post default. Um, so you know, trying to create the guarantee that essentially is about to be called is, is, is uh, you know, a bit too late. Um, and so when I'm, what do I mean by, uh, you know, the government support is not what it is. It's not timely and it's not, it's not in full for what the entities need. They, to drag out uh, the resolution of an SAA, um, a Denal and a land bank, um, it's, it's really the, the problem that it, it creates is what happens then to another entity that I know is in, in financial distress? Are they going to treat it the way they've treated this one? 
Um, and I know everything's on a case by case basis, but you start looking and saying, is this really a, it's policy important to have a land bank, but it's clearly not strategically important to, to bail it out immediately in full on time. Um, clearly the government is saying we can't afford to do that. Um, investors also need to, to share in the, in the burden of the reform we're trying to do. Um, and that for me means um, you can't take implicit support at all. And the second thing is, like I explained, a, a guarantee is not going to solve the problem uh, of governance. It's actually probably not going to result in you getting your money um, immediately. There's always a negotiation. And so, yeah, Land Bank had guaranteed debt, but we haven't seen a guarantee call because there's a standstill. And so, you know, I think there's a, some investors, some one lender took Land Bank to court, won the case, but you know, they have until um, I think 17 months to meet certain conditions. And if they're not met, then they can call their money. It's not, the National Treasury is not a distressed debt manager. They, they're not um, adept at dealing with that. And that's my concern. On that, where you, you, you talked a lot about government support and you spoke about it from the perspective of one where the manner in which a government can support an SOE would be um, through um, a guarantee or through bailouts. And then you did mention that they might give the support and it doesn't yield the results. So just to flip that to say, how should we think about effective government support? Effective government support for me would be, um, you know, making good on the promise that you had initiated at the, in the first instance. So if an entity fails, and you said it was strategically important and you issued guarantees is that you make good on that, um, which they, in most part, they've been keeping to, if you take an ESCOM for instance, right? They've used their rights to step in before the default event happens. Um, the second thing is effective government support for me is that you resolve crises uh, expeditiously. You have to do it uh, quickly. Um, the way I'd liken it is if you were to take like African banks default is that the step in by the prudential authority was quick. Government support from the, the sovereign was quick for financial stability. There was an idea and a plan. I can't say the same for the management of SOEs that they have a plan in case entities fail. One technical thing is for a lot of these SOEs, you cannot um, wind them up and dissolve them and liquidate them, right? Uh, and that creates an issue in that the moral hazard is um, you can never really look at the value of liquidation versus keeping them as a going concern. And so people would ask, you know, why do they keep supporting SAA? Was it ever really a credible threat that it can be dissolved if legally really they can't take that action? So you know they're going to just drag it out uh, right up until the end. And from a policy point of view, they might say they don't want to privatize, but there was only one option on the table, which was to get a private participant. So in the end, looking back, they've just let things devolve to a natural end where it's almost like mere culpa. It wasn't my fault. Um, I didn't want to privatize was the only option on the table. And so for me, as soon as you bring in private credit, you can't guarantee it anymore. As soon as you bring in all private equity, um, you know, there's a moral hazard for having government guarantee and also you 
are no longer 100 percent owners so you're saying that i don't actually want to have 100 percent support of this entity so you can say it's policy important but it's not really the shareholding tells you that um either i can't i want to and i can't or that i don't want to and that's what it boils down to so it sounds all over again to me like they'll kick the can down the road until there's no longer any road to kick the can down on yes and so if the road ends this year then we'll definitely see upward revisions to bailouts for uh, strategically important entities where they feel that they have to um it, it can't go on forever I was going to close off this section with the question that was posed on why the government keeps on supporting um, SAA, but I think you did uh, cover that. So we'll close off this section where I think we have about 10 minutes or so, just under 10 minutes left. So we'll use the last 10 minutes just to chat around what's been happening in the domestic debt capital markets, where right now we contextually speaking, uh, we're in a situation where the economy is depressed, um, issuers, they cash flushed, investors are currently being starved of assets and at the same time they're in search for yields there's also a high, very high levels of uncertainty as well in the market with all of that being said jones are there any opportunities in the domestic dcm and if so where are they and how can one best leverage off these opportunities all right um so again i'm going to go back to the cost of credit the curve is very steep so it, there's a very little room in the zero to five year space where uh, corporates can really play. I mean, cash is sitting between four and five percent, essentially, or between three and five percent. Um, and then you have to look at a credit spread. So if they ever going to issue where, you know, there's value relative to the nominal risk free rate, uh, I don't think they can really go too much further beyond you know, the 7% on the R186 government bond on an absolute yield basis. Um, and also you start seeing that you know, the assets of spread is, is, is quite wide as you go longer. So at the end of the day, I think what happens is, is that if you really want to outperform and want to look for opportunities, you have to have some appetite to look further down the, the capital structure of corporates. And that has been a play that we've seen play out for um, subordinated debt of insurers and banks um, and you know also taking securitizations and taking the mess pieces um, or even looking at uh, project loans um, loan syndications and um, project bonds and looking at the um, you know also down the capital structure for those but at the I, I my, my 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 thinking is for for a credit investor you want to be as close as possible to cash flows um, if you're going to play the project space or SOE space in selected areas. Um, the, I, I consider renewable energy, I know this is going to be controversial, that renewable energy is still state-related. The power purchase agreements still come from ESCOM. ESCOM's liquidity position is no better uh, at the moment, even with the tariff hikes. So, you know, if those power purchases, if ESCOM can't purchase, government has to. Governments at the moment can't necessarily afford to even bail out ESCOM, let alone as service a, a guarantee call on power purchase. So, you know, I this is systemic risk aside, I think just the performance of these uh, power energy deals probably is worth a, worth a look. 
but just maybe not for as long a tenor as these power purchase agreements are. They're 20 years at a time. Uh, we haven't seen banks come back uh, for senior and secured funding. They don't need it uh, at the moment, but you know that would have been where you apply most of your volume actually. And so that would leave very small isolated opportunities for higher credit risk. Um, speaking of banks, where there's a question here where um, one of the attendees are saying that we are aware that the SAB will be issuing floating rate notes in the shorter end as a lever to reduce borrowing costs. How do you foresee this playing out and the impact on banks funding spreads? Yeah, so I mean, this is the issue is that, uh, you know, your five your five year um, JIBAR linked deposits, uh, you know, NCDs are about 100, call it 110 basis points, right? but your R186 swaps to floating the asset swap spread uh, at one point was about 150 basis points. Currently, we see, we're looking at it at 134 uh, on this on the slide. So that's where they have to start the price discussion. And will it push up bank funding spreads? It depends on the size. I mean, at the end of the day, if it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, if they're trying to set up a, a very big benchmark, well over, say, a, a 5 billion um, rand, for instance, um, I'm just thumb sucking a figure. Um, the average issuance in, in our market is between 750 to a billion. Rand, right? So that would move market, that would move uh, bank funding curve and squeeze them out of the five year space uh, completely. So, I mean, they have to really think about it from a financial stability point of view. Remember that in a risk off environment in South Africa, the two places you go is treasuries um, at the front end is cash and bank wholesale deposits. And so, you know, there is naturally um, money that does wash into into banks anyway and keeps rates fairly stable. That's what a closed rent system does. It's not like our wholesale funds can go abroad. Um, so I think from a Saab's point of view, they would really have to sit and look and say, what's the rationale for doing this? Um, is it really necessary? And who's going to hold it? Um, because there's probably basis risk to arbitrage there. Uh, but I think they've spoken about it. Uh, they're going to need to really test the market um, and see where a rational price for it will be. Thank you so much, Joan. So that's all that we have time for this afternoon. But just um, in closing, um, I want to get closing remarks from Jones where um, can we close like this, Jones, where we touched on three main headings being the sovereign rating, SOE credit and the domestic market. For each one, just give me like a sentence that um, each at attendee can um, go home with. So sovereign rating, one sentence, SOE, one sentence, DCM, one sentence, and then it's a wrap. Okay, so uh, sovereign uh, ratings, um, I'm looking to November for, for any action or rating action, but please pay attention now, not only to the fiscal metrics, but to things like political risk and economic uh, growth and per capita wealth levels in particular, some technical things to, to watch out there, um, especially once the IMF data comes out. For SOEs, I think that it's basically no one has a particular appetite for them to, to come to market. It's going to be a negotiated settlement for the next three to five years. I'll go back and 
tell people who read our research to look at what we wrote about zombie firms and uh, the SOEs last year, it's still very relevant because I foresaw in a situation where, um, you know, it just becomes tricky to see who's failing, who's provided financial reports, who's not disclosing anymore. And then finally, for the corporate bond market, look, it's, it's, it's again, wherever there's been a, a bid, um, the, the, the market has been ready to support credit. But I think with the, the we take our cue from the curve, from the swap curve, if there's an upward jibar drift, really for returns for investors, jibar is going to do all the work uh, for return. The bet is always in South Africa that we expect more rate hikes than uh, rate cuts over a credit cycle over a 10 year period. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily, don't be obsessive about credit spread itself um where it's uh, you know you've got good credits it's more about the all-in uh, where where your appetite is for um your own performance return um and that all has to do with the shape of the swap curve